The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyet, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Is joining me for the hour is Mr. Sean Sweeney, who are a few people that I track, uh, follow. I figured this would be a, a good conversation to talk about something we don't talk about, which is the real estate development side. Sean, for those who are not uh, familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? How would you get involved and interested in real estate development, and what are you doing with your firm? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate uh, First off, just appreciate you having me on, and uh, congratulations on the, the top 10. Hopefully... Uh, Today, hopefully today's conversation doesn't drop you out of that. So um, we'll see if we can have some fun. Um, so I've been in the commercial real estate uh, business for coming up on 20 years. Um, I started, was was a wayward kid, didn't know what he wanted to do out of college. Uh, ended up, long story short, kind of talked my way into a receptionist slash admin job at a development firm out in San Francisco. Uh, we had moved out there. Um, worked there for a bit, uh, ended up working my way up to a project manager role, got to run a bunch of different ground up development deals, uh, up and down Silicon Valley last cycle. So to think 2004, uh, till the world kind of imploded in 2008, 2009, uh, moved to Minneapolis in 2010. Uh, I'd grown up in the Midwest. My wife's from Minneapolis, uh, spent six years here with an investment fund. Uh, development was a little slow to get going again, but there was plenty of opportunity to buy uh, existing apartments at that point. So worked at a fund and spent six years buying those around. We bought property all around the country. Uh, was there for, for those six years. As I said, we bought something like 9,000 apartments in that amount of time. Uh, in 2017, left that firm to start my own company. Uh, really missed, was enjoying what I was doing, but really missed the creation process and missed, missed development. Uh, started a company that's now Hall Sweeney Properties, which is a company I, I co-founded and, and run with my business partner, Jeff Hall. Uh, we're based in Minneapolis, ground up apartment developers. Uh, so we're doing new construction. Uh, we build what I call high, higher design, uh, but small units in desirable areas. So we're picking out areas of the city, areas of the suburbs and other markets where there's already an established market. People already want to live there. Uh, we know that. And we, we look at the city and, and all of our markets as a puzzle. And we're trying to put a P, we're trying to fill in that puzzle with just an infill uh, urban type product. Um, we build these smaller units so we can do really nice buildings, but at the same time, uh, be able to offer those out to the market at what are 
slightly below kind of the top of the market, what are called class A rents. So our, our buildings are usually a couple hundred bucks a month cheaper to live in. You sacrifice a little bit of square footage in your unit. But again, in these neighborhoods that we're building, the neighborhoods, the amenity, we have tons of amenities, co-working spaces, other things in the building. So uh, we're working on our ninth project now. Uh, our portfolio is in the high 90s uh, occupied. And uh, we're looking uh, at the future and, and a lot of opportunities to expand. Um, obviously, the market has <laughs> interest rates and the market have, have said otherwise here in the short term. But uh, I'm sure we can talk more about that. All right. So you talk about you, you go to where there are established markets. I've I've got to assume that knowing what's an established market pre-COVID is harder, or maybe it was easier, I should say, than what it is uh, post-COVID. Um, what what are some of the things that you've been looking at um, in terms of the, the work from home and stay at home? How has that impacted where you are putting your attention? Sure, that's a that's a great question. We um, I, I joke that we were on a project that we started in 2019. We were we we are we're in an arts district here in Minneapolis, and we had one room that we were going to make on the first first level. We're going to turn it into an art gallery, and we spent a lot of time and effort on design. Um, and we got to the point, Michael, we we just couldn't get it right. We just kept saying, you know, the the, the vision is there, but something's off. This just isn't the space that we're you know trying to create. And we kind of took a step back. Uh, I took some time. Uh, what I do sometimes is, you know, I, I research other projects around the country. I look at what people in New York are doing, people in LA, some of these more um, trend-setting markets. And I realized I there was a couple buildings that were doing co-working spaces. And again, this is pre-COVID. So I brought up the idea and everybody thought I was nuts. Um, we ended up deciding to put a co-working space into our building. And of course, then in 2021, when it came to the market during COVID, we looked smart. The people were like, wow, how did they know how to do that? <laughs> Um, but right now that's, I would say that's probably the biggest change in what we're doing. We're not changing locations per se. Um, we are looking a little more suburban now than we did in the past, but, um, I think it's more about the amenities in the building and the way that we're creating the buildings post COVID a lot more community space, a lot more work from, you know, we assume everybody in the building at some point in time is working from home. So we're doing large built-out co-work spaces. I mean, it's you know, what, what was akin to a WeWork space a couple of years ago. You can go into some of our buildings and see these co-working spaces, and it's it's like a downtown high-rise co-working space. Okay, now I've heard you on on prior conversations, um, Sean, talking about the feelings and the experience you had during the '08 crisis, and I think a lot of people are nervous, right, given yeah. where mortgage rates are, especially as it relates to housing and. You know, we can argue that commercial real estate's got its own dynamics, but I'm I'm curious. Just take us back to um, the lead up to the OA crisis, what you were seeing, what you were experiencing, and if there's any parallels to today's uh, environment in terms of that commercial real estate side. Mm-hmm. Sure. So we in '08. So I, I was out, as I said, I was I was working in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, at that point, and we were kind of the last to start to feel the effects. I know it, it, it kind of 07 is when things really started to crater in the Midwest. Um, 08, it became pretty evident everywhere. And, and we, we really didn't feel the pain till kind of mid 08 uh, late, and later. Um, so we were, we were working on a number of projects. Um, you know, I, I'll, I have this ingrained in my mind forever. I was, we were finishing a condo building in Walnut Creek, California, uh, which is about 20 minutes outside of kind of San Francisco, uh, East Bay. And, 
great building. It was about 84 units. We had just started pre-selling and we'd worked really hard on it for a number of years. And of course the market just absolutely changed. And we were sitting there with 84 vacant condos that um, we owed several, you know, we owed 40, $50 million to bank of America at that point. Um, It was dicey. Um, I, I spent a lot of time helping get that building finished. And then, um, a lot of time, unfortunately, on the phone trying to get a hold of Bank of America to work out our loan in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, it, it was interesting that you know a lot of the bankers that we had started working with when we put the deal together and had the closing dinner with and, and were our contacts. You know, of course, by the time we were in trouble, we're no longer with Bank of America. Um, so they, at the beginning, I was literally calling the one eight hundred number, trying to find somebody in commercial lending uh, to help us out. Uh, on that, I mean, the guys I worked for, you know, things actually worked out really well. Uh, they converted it to apartments and then sold it in like 2013 and did really well. Uh, but we started, I mean, it, it felt like in 08, 07, 08, that things were cruising along and then the music just stopped. You know, it was like one day everything's great and the next day it just felt different. And I think that's what we're feeling now. I think that's kind of one of the parallels to right now is. You know, if you look at 2020, 2021, 2022, some of the best years in the history of the real estate market. And I mean, home prices, I read something earlier, I, I'm, I'm going to misquote this number, but, you know, home prices went up something like 50% between 2020 and the end of 2022 or 2020, mid-2022. Um, you know, so it, it's, I think the big, the big parallel is that, you know, things are good. And then, you know, you don't get a lot of warning that things are changing, right? You don't, no, nobody's outside with, with flyers or, or flags saying, Hey, the world's changing. Be careful, change what you're doing because, um, you know, we're going through a downturn. So I think that's, that's definitely one of them. Um, it's, you know, right now it's, Wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. And, sorry, and, and so, yeah. I've heard anecdotes of this are, are, are developers starting to just walk away from projects that are just not completed because they can't secure the funding. I mean, what, what's well, sort of so, mid Yeah, go ahead. Sure. So that's, that's a, uh, so the way, I mean, typically in development, you know, a ton of your risk is upfront, right? You're, you're acquiring land, you're paying several hundred thousand dollars to design it, paying architects, engineers, uh, you know, in larger markets, those numbers can easily be into the millions by the time you're ready to start construction. And if you don't start construction, you don't get that money back. Right. So if you walk away from that, you're just, that's, that's just sunk money. Um, a lot of people right now are walking away from those types of situations. Um, you know, even us, we, we've had a, we had a couple projects that we were hoping to start uh, one this fall and then one sometime, you know, very, very soon here. Um, given what's happened with rates and, and costs, neither one of them makes short term financial sense. I mean, we just can't put the deals together. So um, that's, that's a tough thing. People are walking away from that kind of stuff. Once you start construction, Michael, you, you typically don't walk away if you have a fully funded construction loan. Um, you've got, I mean, th- that's kind of the big flag in the ground in development. When, when you start construction, um, it's not always true. Sometimes people try to get construction loans after they've started. But for the most part, people are getting the full construction loan and then starting. So once you have that, you know, unless you run, unless you run out of money or run into some other issue, it really doesn't behoove you to stop. I mean, it's almost less risky just to build the thing and see what happens at that point in time. Because um, also construction, as you guys, as everyone knows, takes, depending on the scale of the project, can take 12 months on the, on the low end, can take 36 months. And if you started a project six months ago, I mean, we started a project last March. 
and 204 unit project um, that, you know, wouldn't be able to start it today. Uh, the good news is it's not going to be done till the end of 2023. So a lot can change between now and then. Right. And I think the point there is that there's this almost kind of residual activity that keeps uh, happening. Right. I mean, sir, you hear these stories about how the Absolutely. entire space is finished. Right. But the reality is it, it takes time for the construction from the prior low rates to be completed. So you almost have this drift of activity. And then at some point it stops. That's a very that's a that's exactly right. It's a very astute observation. I mean, we. Um, I, you know, we, we talk to obviously city planners, city council people all the time and everyone keeps saying, yeah, but look at all the cranes in the sky. Everything's going to be fine. And you know, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. All those projects started at least 12 months ago, if not, if not longer. Right. So you're not going to see the effects of less development for probably another. And again, this, this depends on what market you're in, in the United States, right. In, in Minneapolis, where I am, uh, you're not going to see the cranes go away for another 12 to 24 months. Uh, you know, in Miami, it might be another two or three years because people are building high rises there. Right. So, yeah, it's very market dependent. Uh, sure. Um, I think that I do. I mean, I think it's going to and I should I should start by saying not a crypto NFT expert in any way, shape or form. So take take this for what it's, it's worth. But I, I see. I don't see it completely remaking the real estate market. I mean, I think I, I don't, you know, there's been so much, you know, so many things trying to disrupt real estate for frankly decades at this point. And, and, you know, there's been little, little changes on the margins, but nothing, nothing, you know, that's gone too much. Um, I think with crypto and, and NFTs and things of that nature, I think, you know, the tokenization could, would probably help the, the ownership, you know, the, the record keeping. I mean, I, if I, if I ran a title company right now, I might be concerned um, or I'd be, you know, looking as to how, how is this going to affect my business? Because I think that's where we're going to see it um, in, in, you know, ownership records, all, all the paperwork and all the kind of logistics that we go through with, with property ownership. I think the, the tokenization might, you know, have an effect there and, and hopefully a positive one. Um, potentially at some point, um, I think it's going to take people getting really comfortable with this, but I could, you know, again, I, I, am not an expert. I could see, uh, like for example, when we raise, when we do our projects, we, we raise money from, from our, our network of, of investors and it's, it's everybody's putting in money. Everyone is wiring us money to a bank account or sending us a check. And, you know, we, it's kind of that same pa- old school paper way of doing it, you know, potentially in the future, is there do we offer a, is there a method in which we offer a token for the project and everyone can buy a portion of the token or something and they're paid out that way. Um, so yeah, I, I see things coming. As I said, I don't, I don't think we're going to see the way buildings built differently necessarily because of it, but I do think in the, um, you know, the more le- legal pieces of it potentially. It's a good question. Um, <sighs> Yeah, I, I hate to say they're too big to fail because I'm sure in five years that'll make me look really stupid. Um, you know that that's almost a that it's really a different business than what I'm doing in the sense that, and I think this comparison might might highlight is, you know, I'm doing a project at a time, right, or or two or three, probably at the most, right. Um, these guys are all over the country building, as you you described really well, you know, neighborhoods after neighborhoods after neighborhoods. It's it's a their, their business is a scale business. So they're making lower, mar- you know, my margins are likely higher than theirs, but their scale is obviously, you know, 
hundred X what I'm doing or a thousand or whatever, whatever the number is. So I think that a lot of those firms are in a position that because of their scale, they might have a couple of failed neighborhoods here and there, or as you, as you described it, some half built homes, some lots that don't get developed. I don't know that, that want, you know, that a handful of those takes down someone like DR Horton. Um, I think if the housing market plunged 30% or did something like it did in 08 and they were, you know, levered to the hilt, there's potential for that to happen. Um, my guess is right now what'll happen is they'll just abandon some of those. Uh, you know, they'll, once they realize things aren't going well, and if they can't get rid of them, they'll either fire sale them to somebody, fire sale them to, to people in your town, or they'll just let them sit. And they'll, they'll, as long as they keep their, their core business safe, you know, they might, they might, as long as they finance them smart and, and not, everything's not tied together, they can probably afford to let some of those just go. Yeah, it, it's, uh, and that's the thing is I, I kind of described before. Once you start the project, you know you're kind of you're you kind of got to finish it, right? Or you got to walk away from it. So they're probably doing everything they can to to get it it done, even if it ends up being a loss for them. Um, I, I was down in Miami over the holidays, and we actually took a day trip to the Everglades and driving through some of the towns. It, same situation. It was just you know custom or, or you know national builder lot after national. It was it was amazing, and we were so far out there. And I kept thinking who, who's going to live all the way out here. Um, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there for sure. Might be some opportunities to buy some of those at a good price. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello listeners. Michael Guyad here from lead lag live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the lead lag report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I mean, that could be interesting for, for you know more specialized players that are not trying to go yeah. the scale, right? Because... <laughs> that's the thing when you're in an environment of very cheap liquidity it's very easy to scale up but also very right. easy to be inefficient absolutely that's exactly right the um so i shared at the the top of the nest here the tweet about walkable urbanism um which i think is kind of an interesting uh concept that call just yeah yeah let's talk about walkable urbanism what is that first of all and and is that something that people should be maybe more aware of as they think through where to either work or live. Sure. It's, you know, I, I made that post cause I'm, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I live in a neighborhood in Minneapolis where I'm in a single family house. Uh, I have a family, um, but I live in a, in a neighborhood that has, you know, there's plenty of apartment buildings. Um, and you know, I was walking, th- th- I wrote that post on a Saturday when my kids and I, Went to a farmer's. We went to the farmer's market, which is right a block away from my house. So we got out, walked over to the farmer's market. You know, got some vegetables, got fruit, got had a popsicle. You know, had a nice time. Walked one block in the other direction to a park. Um, I sat. We I think we got some donuts, and I sat and had coffee and watched my my kids play at the park. And then we decided they wanted to go by the lake, so we walked four blocks in the other direction, and we we're on the beach of a lake. 
And, and this is in the city, in an urban area of Minneapolis. Um, and it just struck me as I was doing that, what an unbelievable luxury that is to have. Um, and so that, and that urbanism and walkable urbanism, that, that's the concept that you don't need to get in a car that you can do with you, you have all the things you need within a six block radius of, of your, of where you live. You know, you think of Manhattan, you think of New York, right? Think of Manhattan. I mean, that's walkable urbanism to a T, right? You got everything you need within six blocks. Granted, it's obscenely expensive to live there and it's tough for many people to do that, but that's the concept. Um, and my, my point was, you know, it's such a luxury, but it shouldn't be. I mean, everybody that wants to live like that should, and it, it, I won't, I don't, I don't mean to try to politicize this or go down that road in any way, shape or form, but you know, it's better for the environment. It's better for a number of things. It's better, frankly, just for your health to walk everywhere as opposed to being in your car. How do you, how do you encourage that? So obviously this is very much on the local level and you need to have some, some reduction of, of red tape and, you know, kind of real rethinking of, I guess, city planning. But uh, yeah. how, how do you get to a place where that becomes more and more of a focus? Cause I'm with you, right? I mean, if you have more of that, you probably wouldn't have as much concern around, you know, gas prices whenever they spike because everything's to your point walkable. Yeah, you're right. It is. I mean, it is at, at the, at the highest level, it's a city planning um, decision. Many, I'm, I'm fortunate. And, you know, people that live in urban areas of, you know, what I'd call at least second tier or, or larger cities, you know, you see, you see the walkable urbanism, um, you know, LA, maybe, maybe not as much, but you know, if you, you could live in Santa Monica and have that, right. Or you could live in one of those areas of LA and still have that. So it is, it does start at the top and it, it's, it needs to be Minneapolis basically rezoned the entire city in 2020. And, to, to promote walkable urbanism, to show developers where they wanted density and where they didn't. And it's basically to try to spread that out around the city. Um, but it is, it is, it's hard. I mean, we, you know, I develop in cities on purpose. Um, frankly, it'd be a lot easier and, and um, a lot less headache for me to go out and, you know, as the question earlier about DR Horton, you know, go buy some cornfields, plow them over and build some cheap, crappy apartments out there. Um, I, I could do that too. I mean, it did frankly be easier, but that that's almost going totally against what I believe and, and kind of the whole point of the walkable urbanism. Now, I know, I know you, you focus a lot on the idea of having innovative building designs and, and trying to sort of have a different look and feel to your properties. First of all, um, what is innovative about some of the things that you do? Um, and how does it stand? How does what you do stand out against others that are trying to do similar developments? We, I think the best way to describe it is every site that we build, we look at independently. You know, we don't, we don't have, and I'm doing air quotes right now. We don't have a product that we've designed that we just look for places to put it. We're looking at each site independently and saying, what's the highest and best use of this? What's missing in the community? What's missing in this neighborhood? I mean, obviously we build housing. So we're, we're looking for sites that we think the answer to that question is housing, but we're, we're starting there and then we're kind of organically creating buildings in each of these places. Um, I wouldn't say that I, I think, you know, we, we just spend more time. The design, my, at the end of the day, I fully believe that it's a better investment dollars and cents wise to spend more time and effort on the design to create a slightly better product because longer term, 
you're going to have stickier residents. And, you know, we've, we've really seen that over the past couple of years when the market's really good, you can build anything. It doesn't matter because people need a place to live and they'll rent it and they don't care. But as we talked about earlier, as the market turns and changes, um, and we're seeing this in Minneapolis a little bit right now, um, you know, people have tons of apartments to choose from. And we, we've been really, really fortunate that our buildings are, are staying full and, and people are liking them and the sense of community that we've created. So we're, we're just going, I would say, a little bit above and beyond to create community, to focus on the design, to focus on the user experience at our buildings. And um, we're not always looking for the lowest cost option because there's, you know, there's two types of developers. There's merchant builders, folks who just build buildings and then sell them right away, typically. Or folks that build and try to hold on to them for a long, for the longer term, and we're we're the latter. Um, and the advantage we have by doing that is it allows us to make longer term decisions with the materials, with you know any anything that comes up. We would often make a different decision if our biz, if our business plan was to sell the building as soon as we were finished. You know, we wouldn't spend that extra twenty cents on that exterior material that makes the building look gorgeous, or um, you know, we we would we had an opportunity recently on a, on this project that's under construction to save a little money by changing the unit backsplashes. And we spent a ton of time deciding on the backsplash. And when it came down to it, we said, you know what, it would be great to go cheaper and save that $20,000, but this is a $44 million, 204 unit project. Um, Long-term, we're going to be much happier that we went with the better backsplash. Just for the uh, remaining 32 minutes here, everybody please make sure you follow uh, Sean Sweeney. And if you're curious, anything in the Minneapolis area, check out uh, his website and everything he does there. Um, let's let's pivot a little bit to just a bit of macro talk um, because you've got to be aware, obviously, of interest rates and you've got to be aware of what the Fed is doing and oh, yeah. where things are, right? And, and it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, that a, a lot of the residents, a lot of those that are uh, in your properties probably are, you know, upper middle income, you know, it's more on the kind of higher end of things. Um, do you, are you seeing any, any sort of major pickup in people leaving or people getting nervous about the economy and just, just talk through that for a bit. Um, yeah, no, not, I mean, and actually Michael, just to, to clarify too, we, um, we build these, these higher design buildings, but with the small units, you know, our rents are, are usually below the top of the market. So we are actually attracting, um, I would say our average tenant is probably 22 to 32. Um, we're attracting people that want their first, second, third apartment. Um, so we have, we definitely have some high end units and some high end folks, but I would say the majority of our folks are still kind of young professionals. Um, we're not seeing a lot of that. I mean, I, I think we're feeling it on the macro level as business owners. And, and I'm sure a lot of people on this call can relate to that. Um, I've used the comparison to, to 2007, 2008, you know, I didn't have any ownership. I wasn't an owner of that company that I was working at. Um, I knew stuff wasn't going well, but I was still getting my paycheck and I still had a job. I didn't have any stake in whether the building went up 20% or down. I mean, it it was important to me because obviously I wanted our company to do well, but personally it didn't hurt me. So I don't know at a, at a kind of a retail, you know, individual level, how much people are feeling it yet. We were kind of joking last fall that, Everybody in commercial real estate seems to think there's a recession coming and nobody in the rest of the world is paying any attention. Um, people are going on vacation. People are spending money. People are buying cars. Obviously, a lot of that has changed here in the past few months. But we started to see it last fall, certainly, where um, you know construction costs have gone up considerably over the past couple of years. 
Um, in a lot of markets, rents did. In, in Minneapolis, rents didn't go up quite as much. Um, and then the big, the, I think the big third piece was the interest rates, right? If they've gone up two and a half, you know, two and a half X uh, from six, seven months ago, that's that's been the biggest issue as far as um, getting new projects going because it doesn't. We we can build projects when rates are seven percent, um, but we can't build projects when rates are seven percent. Costs have gone up forty percent, and rents have stayed flat. Right? It's kind of a three-headed monster. We need those those three items work together. So rates could go way down, and we could still do projects, or rates could stay where they are. Costs could stay where they are, and rents could go up quite a bit. In that case, we could do projects again. Um, so it all it all kind of works together. But macro wise, I don't know. I think my crystal ball is as fuzzy as, as ever. I, I if you would have if I would have talked to you a month ago, I would have said we're going to hell in a handbasket. And uh, I've got a, a single family home here, a, a one that I rent out, and couldn't get anybody to look at it uh, for a while. Was going to sell it, couldn't get anybody to look at it. Kind of gave up on it and figured we'll we'll unload it when the time is right. And, came back from the holidays and, and all of a sudden everybody seems to want to buy a house again, which has been pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's funny how there's, there seems to be a disconnect from the the narrative versus the reality of the way people are acting and, and spending. And I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that point. That's more than just rates, right? So it, it's very simplistically, you often see on FinTwit, a lot of people say, well, high rates and that means everything's going to collapse. Well, but if, if to your point, you can still keep on doing development, even with higher rates, as long as commodity building prices, building a commodity, uh, uh, material prices are going down, then it's still doable, right? Because there's still mar- some margin there. Right, right, absolutely. Or, or you know, rental rates, for example, in Minneapolis, if we, if rents, if we if we knew rents were going to grow ten percent over the next two years, we could still start a project. But yeah, you're you're exactly right there. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Uh, Caleb had uh, put a question in the thread asking, how do you decide whether to keep a project or sell? Um, so we, it, it, it depends. Um, I mean, big picture, it depends on what your company is trying to do. Um, as I talked about a little bit earlier, uh, if you're going to, it affects the design, it affects the decisions you make along the way. If you were going to build and sell something, you know, you, you would want to value engineer it as much as you can and, and frankly build it for, you know, build, build the, the product that you knew you could sell for the least possible cost. Uh, when you're holding long-term, you also want to obviously keep your costs as reasonable as possible, but you think about things like material choices and do they last, does, is this material last 10 years or 27 years? If you're selling the building right away, obviously you don't care about those types of things. It's not your problem. Um, we look at, I look at real estate and say it's a great um, long-term cash flow play and it's the most tax-advantaged money you can make, right? Um, if you're making the majority of your money from the cash flow of properties and you're depreciating other properties, you know it, it, it's very tax-advantageous to do that. Um, considerable net worth growth by you know, continuing to stack property on top of property. Um, so it, it really depends on your goals. I'm, I'm 
the first generation of my, let's say, lineage. My my mom uh, grew up poor in Israel. My dad grew up lower middle class in, in the U.S. Um, I'm the first one in my family to have ever made any sort of money. And my goal is to build a legacy, build a, build generational wealth for future families. So I'm not as incentivized to build a building, sell it, go buy a new car with that money. I'm trying to stack equity after equity after equity. So I'm 40. I just turned 45. So when I meet, hopefully when I'm alive and healthy at 90 and my kids and their grandkids, you know, are living their lives out in the world, uh, grandpa did what he needed to do to, to kind of help everybody. But there is a there is an opportunity to sell. I mean, look, if, if we built a building at a, let's say, a, a six and a half return on cost and somebody showed up at our door and said, I'll pay you a three cap for that. And it would you know, all of our investors would make three times their money in 24 months. We, we would certainly do that from time to time as well. So maybe to that point about increasing the equity side, presumably I'm going to make the assumption that you're going to move beyond Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, but again, it's all local, right? And you know that area pretty well. I mean, what's the thought process for you as far as moving outside of the state and, and building other areas? Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely on our radar. Um, we are, we're actively looking in a few other markets right now. We have a, a site in Wisconsin that we own that we're, we're working on a large master plan on, you know, it, it's interesting. It, it, I don't want to limit us with, with, with goals. I mean, it's one reason I don't set a concrete goals because my, my goal when I started the company five and a half years ago was, boy, maybe every couple of years I could build one 40 unit project. Wouldn't that be awesome if I could do that? I mean, that was literally my goal. And we're five and a half years in now, nine projects in, over 700 units will be done when we're done with this project. And if I had limited myself by setting that, that goal, you know, it, it would be a totally different story. Um, one of the things that actually, to be honest, um, helped us start thinking about expansion was Twitter. Um, I got active a couple of years ago during the pandemic when we were on a trip with our family, just on, to be honest, out of boredom. And ran across some of the, the people on the real estate Twitter thing and, and eventually introduced myself and started posting some pictures of my buildings and whatnot. And I like to tell people I was probably the right developer at the right place at the right time when it came to that, because there's a lot of people doing really great work out there. So there's no reason that my account should have grown the way it did. But I, I don't know the exact number. I'm, I'm somewhere in the low 40,000s of followers at this point. And the part about it that that's really been great is I've met developers and landowners and investors from all over the country, frankly, all over the world at this point. And I have somebody from a different market reach out to me probably every week now with an opportunity or, Hey, you want to partner with us? We want to take, I've had people say point blank, we want to take what you do in Minneapolis and do it in our market. And we want you to help us. So we're definitely exploring those opportunities. And, and, you know, at some point here in the next few years, don't be surprised when you see a photo or a, announcement that we're breaking ground in, in some other market. But by, by the way, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I mean, I, I tend to not mention that often myself, but it's true that I think one of the underappreciated aspects of Twitter is it can be a form of networking and lead generation beyond a tweet, right? That if you can actually get somebody on a phone because they're finding you through Twitter or through some other social media network, uh, you know, everybody benefits from that, but you've got to be out there to, to, to have those people find you. Yep. 
Yeah, it's been, I'll tell you, Michael, we've, and I, I, again, I never started with this, that, that was never the the goal. There was no master plan to like, Hey, let's get involved in Twitter and, you know, find investors and meet people and do, I mean, that was never it. It just kind of serendipitously happened, but you know, we've, we've raised, we, I've met, I mean, our, we have about 150 individual investors now on our, on our investor list that have invested in our projects over the years. And, you know, we've probably added 25, 30 of those from Twitter in the past couple of years. Um, folks that just saw my work and saw our work and reached out to me privately and we got to know each other and, and they ended up investing in projects. And, you know, the other thing that's been really phenomenal is we, we also do our, our company also consults for other developers. We're, you know, with, there's a lot of developers that have great sites, but they're always they're always missing some piece of the puzzle. So we, we've been really fortunate that we've been able to kind of fill those gaps for people. And, you know, we, we've brought in well over seven figures of revenue from consulting for the past couple of years, just from people we've met on Twitter. And another question from the uh, thread here says, what's your interior design and architecture process? Uh, how much collaboration between you, the architect and designer? Oh, much, much to my architect chagrin too much. Um, now we, so we, you know, the way it works is you start out with, you know, you, you start out with a site and an idea and you do what's called kind of some schematic work where it's, Let's just see what what we could do here, what could fit here. Let's let's go through the process. Um, I am, and I can't I can't speak for every developer because everybody does it differently. But um, I am probably as hands on as anybody, um, if if not more. We're we're in every I'm in every design meeting, and and now I have I'm, I'm fortunate to have a team. Uh, I have some employees that work under me that, that you know will cover meetings from time to time. But I, I allow my architects to to run with things, but. Most times I'm making the final decision on everything design related and same with interiors. Well, we have a team that, you know, sources all the stuff for us, shows us all the ideas and we spend hours and hours and hours uh, going through ideas saying yes to, you know, I like this chair. I don't like that chair. So we, we really get deep in it. Um, the one thing I would, I would caution there is for whatever reason, myself and, and one, one woman on my team, we understand design. And again, I don't know how I do or why I do. I just think I do at this point. I don't think most developers do. So I think if you're most developers, you should rely very heavily on your architect and your interior designer to make all those decisions for you. I think a lot of developers will look at buildings or look at options and say, hey, my wife likes blue. So let's make that wall blue when that wall had no business being blue. But a lot of architects and interior designers are in you know, they're, they're serving a client. And so it's hard for them to speak up and say, no, you know, with, respectfully, that's a terrible idea. And I, I tell my architects all the time, I want you, I'm very opinionated about the design. I think I, I have decent taste and I know what I'm talking about, but I want you to disagree with me. I always want you to make sure I don't make that blue wall if I'm not supposed to. And we also have a thing where if we're all, if we're on the fence about something, um, I always look to my architects and my interior designers and I say, you know, make the case. Tell me why I should go with what you're telling me as opposed to what we're thinking over here. And I have a rule that I don't know if I've ever told them this, but if if we're if there's a stalemate on a design decision and my architect wants one thing and we think something else, 99% of the time we're gonna trust the architect and go with them. Absolutely. And one I appreciate that very much, Cindy. Thank you. And um one thing I, I would maybe say on top of that too is just you know, we are, we are looking at expansion a little bit, but it's because people are calling us about coming to their market and partnering with them, not because we're just looking to go out there and, and, and find new places necessarily. I mean, 
if we do a deal in a new market, it's absolutely going to be in a joint venture with someone else to start. Who knows that market really well? But, but by the way, I will, I will say real quick because I think that that's an interesting. Um, it kind of relates to the idea of growing too fast, right? And and you know, kind of all the growing pains that come from growing too fast. You know, you want to expand, you want to build. You the 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 more you've got a reputation, the more compounds into more leads. But you know, again, you've got to be selective still because otherwise, you know, you can get into trouble um, growing too quickly. Um, let's talk about some of that refinement process, maybe a little bit more, Sean, on your end. So, are there certain things that are are you know, for you, definitely reasons to not consider doing development, reasons to absolutely consider development. Let's kind of dig down into that a little bit. Well, I think, you know, that's a good question. I, th- I think we're, you know, it, it's our business. So we're, we're certainly looking to say yes, if we can. Um, but Cindy, Cindy made a great point that, you know, most plots of land or old, you know, most things don't make financial sense, right? So a lot of it is, um, you know, I mean, first and foremost, there has to be, it has to make financial sense to be able to do it. You have to be able to attract equity. You have to be able to attract debt. You have to be able to provide a comfortable return on those numbers for both of those groups. Um, so that that's you know primarily one of it. One of the big things, and you know, for, the first thing for us outside of that is, is this an area or is this a is this a plot of land that we want to own for thirty years? We, we may or may not own it for thirty years, but would do we want to? And if the answer is no, we're normally not going to do it. Um, you, you, know, you know what's funny about it is that, that it's like I, I feel like nobody thinks like that anymore except real estate people, right? I mean, you, you see, being a long-term investor in the stock market now is like a month. Yep, absolutely. It. I will tell you, I and I'm, you know, I'm human. I'm as guilty as anybody. There are there are bright shining objects floating all around me all the time, and there's a lot of days where I'm like, enough with this slow, steady crap. Let's go to Miami and build a couple high rises and sell them and call it a day. Um, but that's also how you go broke very quickly. Um, we, you know, my partner is aligned with me on this, and it's how he built his business prior to, to teaming up with me. It's, you know, I'm as I said earlier, I'm not looking to, I'm not looking to, you know, buy a brand new car every year. I want to make sure co- coming from where I did, I want to make sure my grandkids are taken care of. So. I'm looking at everything, you know, I, I grew up and I don't, I'm not looking for a sob story here. You know, I, I didn't grow up with much, um, where I am already, where I was 10 years ago is so far ahead of where I ever thought I'd ever end up. So to me, it's, it's not, there, there's not a huge, uh, I'm not keeping up with any Joneses. I've, I'm so far ahead of any Joneses I ever knew. It doesn't even matter to me at this point. So I'm just trying to be slow, be methodical um, and make long-term decisions. Um, it's hard, but again, as I said, I'm a human being. I like nice things. You know, I see certain things. I see certain houses. I like nice clothes. It's, you know, it's challenging. And there are, there are plenty of days where I'm like, geez, let's just sell a couple of these and take the money off the table. But, you know, try as hard as we can to, to continue to think long-term. Do you find that your success has changed your personality at all? Or do you find that yeah, just because you have more money doesn't necessarily mean that you're a different person. Uh, I'm going to give you the most cliche answer ever. It made me more of who I am. I, I am. I have been able to, now that I, it's a way to say this. <laughs> too I mean, I don't answer to anybody. Maybe I answer to my wife, but I don't have to answer to anybody anymore. I mean, nobody controls me. There's no, I have my own money. I, I can do what I want when I want. And I think it's made me a better person. It's made me more generous. 
It's made me more calm. It's made me less concerned with a million other things that are going on. You know, I, I'm really focused on my business and my family, and my friends, and my health. Anything outside of that is not really on my radar anymore. And I drive my kids to school every day. I pick them up most days. Um, I spend a bunch of time with them. They're nine and six. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm really, really fortunate. Um, I will, I will say, and, and I, I say, I talk about this on Twitter because, um, of how life-changing it was for me, uh, growing up, uh, let's just say there was a lot of mental health issues in my family. Um, I was pretty messed up from that as most kids would be, as you can imagine, I was really, really, really fortunate to find my way into therapy in my mid twenties and 10 years of that off and on. And I'm still in it now. I I do it regularly was the other life changer for me. I mean, there's no way I'd be doing, I'd be who I am doing what I'm doing if I hadn't gone through that as well. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I think that that stigma really does need to go away, especially if you're in a very high stress type of role. I mean, I think it used to be the case on wall street that, you know, if you were if you were seeking therapy because market movement was causing you to lose your mind, you were perceived as weak. Um, and it's become, I think, increasingly more accepted. Um, and I'd argue to your point, that kind of keeps you in the game because you need those you need that help every now and then just kind of set your own mental state right to then keep pushing forward. Yep, absolutely. It's and that's why I'll I'll keep talking about that on Twitter as long as people keep following me because it really I mean, it really was a game changer for me. And I, I see people that have gone through similar things as me and ended up going through, the, you know, and I, I just see it, it just, it changes you. I mean, it, it helps you get rid of, you know, work through all those demons and, and get rid of all those, that crap that's clouding your mind. I mean, I, I told somebody the other day, skills wise, I could have started my firm five, seven years sooner, but my head wasn't right. And it wasn't until my mid thirties that I was like, okay. I'm ready to do this now. So I, I, I love the uh, the five things I just retweeted: therapy, meditation, eating habits, sleep, and exercise. Right, those are kind of the the major mm-hmm. five to focus on. Um, I personally have a big problem with sleep because my mind's always running when it comes to thinking about markets. Yeah. Um, and, and I think yeah. that that's yeah. You talk to any entrepreneur or anybody that's ambitious, I'm sure that's that's actually probably the most challenging uh, aspect of yeah. uh, of this. Right, it's just how do you how do you stay rested, not just physically but mentally. Uh, what are some of the things that you have found have been helpful? I mean, you're at the state now where, you know, you're still ambitious. You can probably coast a bit more than you did before. But when you're in the real heavy building stage, uh, what were some of the things that you yourself did to just keep keep right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you just named all five of them um, for the most part. But, you know, we – I mean, sleep has always – we you know, our kids are, have grown up a, a little bit. But as anybody out there that's on this call that's, that is a parent – knows when your kids are really little, they control your sleep schedule to some degree. Um, so we had, we had many years of bad sleep here while we were sorting through that stuff. Um, so what we've done a couple things, um, there's a guy, I'm sure a bunch of you follow him, Andrew Huberman on uh, Twitter and, and other side. He talks about morning, morning sunlight also where your sleep, the, the, your night of sleep is basically dictated by how much morning sun you got the past two to three days before that, how much, how much time you're out in the sun. So my wife is way better about it than I am, but we get the kids off to school or in the summer when it's lighter earlier, she takes our chair, goes and sits out in our backyard and um, drinks her coffee and, you know, gets a half an hour, a half an hour of, of fresh sunlight every morning. 
it has absolutely changed our sleep. Complete, it, it's a complete 180 to our sleep. Uh, the other thing that we've done, and, and I understand this is a bit of a luxury, we bought a sauna last last year, and, and so it's in our backyard. And we, I'm I'm probably in that sauna four to five days a week for for uh, half an hour, you know, 15 minutes, and then come out for a few minutes, and then back in for 15 minutes. That's the other thing. I I sleep like an absolute baby now with that. I mean, I still have my nights like everybody, you know, depending on if you're up late or you were doing this, or the other thing, it depends. Um, but that's good. The other, the other thing I would, I'm, I do, and I, I'm not promoting this or saying anyone else should do this. Every, I think everybody's different. Um, I stopped drinking alcohol about a year ago. Also that's had a really positive effect on my sleep. That can make it hard to close new business though. <laughs> I think, it right? does. It right. does. But you know what? I, I feel like, it's a big deal if you make it a big deal. And if you just show up to whatever you're doing and say, I'm having a sparkling water. I mean, yeah, I, I think Michael five, 10 years ago, much harder. I think there's been a real health and wellness. You know, you're talking about therapy being a little more mainstream now. I think there's been a real health and wellness awakening probably over the last three to five years. Uh, I can't speak for the world, but certainly in, in the United States, I mean, I'm surprised at how many people I know now that don't drink or go to therapy or do saunas or cold plunges or this, you know, d- people are well, a lot more aware of that kind of stuff now. So I think it, uh, I think it definitely, you know, is different. Um, you know, I mean, and I guess the other thing I would say is I usually have most of the leverage at those tables now too. So if I don't, I mean, I'm not the one that has to drink to fit in. Right, right, exactly right. When you, when you, when you have the power, they're going to mimic your your eating habits and <laughs> right. your drinking habits too. Exactly right. 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 Um, everybody here again, please make sure you follow uh, Sean Sweeney. Again, this will be an edited podcast on all your favorite platforms. Um, Sean, maybe for the last few minutes here, uh, for those that are interested in getting into development uh, now with higher rates, um, you can argue it's a difficult time. You can also argue maybe that's the best time to do it. What would be some of your your key key suggestions or, or advice for those that want to get involved? Uh, sure. I mean, I think you know development. I think the biggest misconception of development out there is that you can figure it. You can just figure it out. On a, it's a pro. It's it's a business and it's a process. It's like being a doctor, being a lawyer, being a plumber. There are processes that go into place, right? Understanding. I mean, I I can't tell you how many phone calls I get with people that say, Oh, I own this land and I started on development and I have a hundred thousand dollars in architectural drawings. And what do you think? And they basically wasted a hundred thousand dollars on architectural drawings that are worthless. Um, there's a, there's a process and it's not rocket science, but you have to go through it to understand it. I, I tell people I worked for other developers and investors for 13 years before I went out on my own. And a lot of that was to make sure I fully understood the process, because the other thing that comes up during the process is I compare it to walking a tightrope uh, between two tall buildings. You know the process now, and you can walk from one end of the tightrope to the other. But the real world is you're walking on that tightrope while everyone's standing on the ground throwing basketballs that you're trying to knock you off that tightrope. So you're not so the tightrope and the process has to be second nature. You don't have to have to think like what's the next step in development now. You know, we're, we're in several situations where we're, you know, we're in the process and we're, we're dealing with a seller who's trying to cancel a contract or we're dealing this, or we got an unhappy neighbor, or we got the city again, you know, there's a million things that come up. You never know which one it's going to be on what deal. So the process has to be second nature to you. So anybody that wants to do development, I, I write this on Twitter all the time. I think there's one of two ways to do it. One, 
you go work for somebody else for a while. You figure out how to get in the door. You do whatever you got to do to get a job. And you don't worry about your salary. You don't worry about your compensation. Think of it as being there to learn. And you're just there to learn. And you suck as much of that out. Hopefully it works out. You like working there. Maybe there's a partnership opportunity for you. Fantastic. If not, you know, like in my case, you got to go start it on your own. But when I started it on my own, my first project was a 41 unit, $11 million development because I had been through it a bunch of times. It wasn't a buying a duplex. So that's one option. The other option is, and, and this is, you know, I always tell people if you're 25, go work for somebody for a decade and then go do it yourself. There's a reason you don't see a lot of 22 year old successful real estate developers out there, right? I mean, I honestly, I'm one of the younger guys in the room most of the time and I'm 45. So that's, that's part of it. The other one would be if you are 45 or 50 or 60 and you're like, look, I really want to do this. You don't, you probably don't have time to go back and get an entry level job and start over. You need to learn what types of sites developers want to buy. And then you need to go find one. And then you need to bring it to somebody like me or Cindy or some of the other people and say, look, I don't have, I want to learn the process. Here's an opportunity that I think is good. Can I just, you know, can I ride alongside you on this one? You're not going to make any money. You're going to give up most of the equity because a guy like me or someone like Cindy, we're going to take all the risk. We're going to get all the money together. We're going to do everything. But you did bring us a site. So you'll get a little equity or a little fee and you can come to every single meeting with us for three years and see how it's done. So those those would be the ways I would suggest. It's not, you know, development is different than investing. Investing is, you know, you can learn investing by buying a duplex and renting it out and seeing how that goes and scale up and scale up and scale up. Building is a different business, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, and Cindy, we may have to. I'd love to do a space with you at some point. I'm glad you came up here, but I, I apologize, everybody, because I have a call I've got to uh, get to I, right now. I, no, for sure, for sure. Everybody, again, please make sure you follow Sean Sweeney. Again, this will be an end of the podcast. I have to hop because I come late for another call here. But thank you, Sean. I really do appreciate your knowledge here. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks, yeah, everybody, right. for listening and appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.